poor people they don't talk much about. Poverty in the countryside. This week's subject on Capital Cloakroom. From the nation's capital, CBS Radio brings you the 944th presentation of Capital Cloakroom. This week's guests are Mr. D. Richard Wenner, Executive Director of the National Association for Community Development, and Mr. Clifford Ingram, Executive Director of the LBJ&C Development Corporation of Monterey, Tennessee. Now, here is CBS News correspondent Daniel Shore. When we think of the poor, we usually think of the urban slums. In fact, impoverishment is deeper in rural America, which has 29% of our population, but more than 43% of our impoverishment. This week, the National Association for Community Development held a two-day conference on rural poverty. And to explore this problem, we have with us today D. Richard Wenner, the executive director of the association, who knows the big picture, and Clifford Ingram with a grassroots view from one community. Mr. Ingram is executive director of the LBJ&C Development Corporation in Monterey, Tennessee. And Mr. Ingram, before we cause confusion by that LBJ, can you tell me what those initials stand for? Yes, sir. These stand for the names of our county seat towns. Livingston, Birdstown, Jamestown, Cookville, and Crossville. Thank you. Uh, gentlemen, and let me say, Mr. Wenner, first, what is the essence of the difference between urban and rural poverty? In some respects, uh, not very much. Uh, uh, the, pe the subject is poverty. It's the poverty of people, people or people, uh, whether rural or urban. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe the biggest difference is the amount of ten attention that the nation is uh, spending on this uh, subject of rural poverty. Uh, uh, we've seen a great deal of thought and energy uh, uh, here in Washington, uh, in the executive branch, in the Congress. The, the, the big picture, uh, the big incident this last few months has been the Ribicoff hearing, throwing a great light and, uh, on the problems of uh, the urban poor. No one has done this. Uh, no one is doing it uh, uh, about the rural poor. And perhaps if there's a difference, uh, it's not so much that people are are different if they're poor in the countryside or in the city as it is that the nation is not as committed to doing something about rural poverty as it is about urban poverty. But the causes of rural poverty are different, aren't they? It's lack of income uh, in both places, uh, Dan. And uh, uh, you, the, uh, the base of income in rural areas has always been agriculture, yes. And here we have a declining demand for, uh, for agricultural labor. Uh, the consolidation of farms, the, me the mechanization of farms, the, the use of chemicals, uh, uh, new techniques, and so forth has meant that we don't need as many farmers as we uh, once did in this nation. And so we have surplus farmers. And so some of them naturally uh, uh, slide off into the, into the pover poverty category. I'd like to back up to one statement that was made er earlier, sir. I think there are some differences between urban and rural poverty. One is, I think there's more loneliness. Because if your next neighbor lives 10 miles away and he's poor, you don't see him very often. But if he lives next door and you're both in the same boat, you can walk over and see him. But you can't do that in the mountains, you see. I think this might be one significant difference between living, I've never lived in a ghetto, I don't know, 
living in a ghetto and living in the mountains of Tennessee or Kentucky or some of our other mountain sections. Are you suggesting it's worse to be poor when you're alone? Well, I think there's more loneliness, yes. I think that, yes, I feel this way. If, if, if you've got a lot of people together in, in the same boat, there's a fellowship, there's, there's a comradeness here that, where you're not isolated. But if you're isolated, and lonely, I think it's worse than living in, in an area where you have others like you. I know that, let me, anytime you go into a mountain home, you can't get away. Uh, they won't talk to you. They won't, they haven't seen anybody, maybe all week long. And they want you to sit there and talk. And uh, you, you may stay there two or three hours, and they'll tell you their problems. And they'll, they'll relate to you the things that have been happening. But they're eager for somebody to come and sit down and talk with them and spend time with them. Could you just... There is, uh, Dan, there is this point, too, that uh, in the city, uh, uh, by walking, you may be able to get to the library, uh, or uh, by bus or by subway, uh, where uh, they're uh, uh, in a, any rural area of our nation, uh, maybe the only library in the county is in the county seat town. This could be as much as 50 miles away uh, from where someone lives out in the countryside. Where are the worst pockets of rural poverty? Cliffs, uh, uh, Appalachian area of the United States is uh, obviously uh, one. The, what is known as the Black Belt South, the old cotton economy, plantation economy, uh, stretching across from North Carolina through South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, into Texas. Uh, the what is known as the cutover area of northern Wisconsin and Minnesota where the trees were all cut down and when they when they went that was about their last resource and there's just no enough, no source of income or uh, economic livelihood uh, some of the the semi-arid desert uh, areas of the uh, uh, Great Plains uh, Rocky uh, Mountain States area and then uh, another in, uh, fascinating contrast uh, right in the middle of the uh, country's richest agricultural area the uh, the uh, California valleys you have the awful problem of uh, Mex uh, the Bracero Mexican American poverty in the urban slums the problem of poverty is very closely connected with racial problem Negroes disadvantaged in the current phrase form a predominant part of the poor to what extent is rural poverty a problem connected with our racial problem? Well, I, it would be certainly connected with it in the Deep South, but now in Appalachia, no. You see, in the section that I come from, about 81,000 people, only about 500 of these are Negroes, and they live in the most progressive area that we have, Cookville. And I would say they are low, middle, uh, class people. The people who are persecuted, abused. If you go to the jail on Sunday in my area, it's, it's the mountaineer who's abused and who uh, uh, is, is the person who really suffers from abject poverty. This country, through the uh, tax dollar, has poured billions of dollars into supporting agriculture in this country. How much of these subsidies have rubbed off on the rural poor? Next to uh, none, Dan, this is one of another paradox. USDA has some statistics which indicate that the average 
government payment to uh, persons, I think the figures are something like, with incomes of less than $2,500, is $51 a year of government payments. Uh, whereas the average payment for uh, farmers with incomes of less, of, in excess of 10000 is in the thousands of dollars, as I recall these statistics. In other words, the farm programs, and this is what you have to call programs of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, farm programs for commercial farmers uh, benefit the, uh, the commercial farmer, uh, the richer in the process. And they do not benefit the poorer farmer. In your area of Tennessee, to what extent have poor farmers benefited from federal programs? Not very much, sir. Um, the hardcore small farmer uh, doesn't even know many times about the benefits. And if it's a loan program, he's afraid to buy. He's afraid he'll lose his property. And they haven't benefited very much. It's, it's been the larger farmers who own large acreage, who have herds of cattle. Uh, of course, now ours, is, there is some farming. Uh, this is part of our economy there. But it's also mining, timber, and industrialization now. But this real small farmer has not received very much benefit. Now, we have an anti-poverty program. We have an organization called the Office for Economic Opportunity, directed by Sergeant Shriver. And rural poverty is a part of that, a part of its jurisdiction. How much has the OEO helped? At our uh, conference this last week, uh, uh, one of the uh, resolutions uh, was a, a, par a paradoxical one where, on one hand, uh, the conference resolved to uh, uh, take a couple slaps at Mr. Shriver in the Office of Economic Opportunity, but then in the next sentence uh, has said, uh, uh, but you're our last best hope, and uh, really we want to uh, strengthen uh, the Office of Economic Opportunity and strengthen its, its rural programs. Uh, OEO has, has had a rough job trying to get its sights uh, set on a rural war on poverty. Uh, the expertise uh, has not been uh, in either OEO or even in this city or anywhere in the nation to, to fight a rural poverty as, uh, was, as there is in the case of the urban war. Uh, you recall that uh, uh, OEO, in some respects, uh, grew out of some of the uh, studies on juvenile delinquency of the uh, Kennedy administration. And so the first uh, group of OEO employees were transfers from that, that juvenile delinquency study, and they, these were studies of uh, poverty in the, in the urban areas, in the ghettos. Um, there was no similar expertise available to Mr. Shriver and to OEO on rural poverty. And so what uh, has had to be done is for, uh, uh, in, in many respects, OEO to make up its, had to develop its own methodology, its own discipline in this field. What have you seen in the way of the effects of the war on poverty on your battleground? We've been involved, sir, since 19, uh, August of 1964. And uh, we have involved a lot of poor people in our section. We are also involved in the administration of a lot of programs. I would say this, that the thing that really gratifies me most is the fermentation that's taking place in the mountain sections now. Uh, call it rising expectations, the, the arousing of hopes, whatever you want to.
but there's a lot of interest. We called a mass meeting in our little five-county area recently, January the 10th. It was spitting snow that night. And the reason we called it was simply to elect seven directors at large throughout the five-county area. We really, the board of directors, I had anticipated maybe 50 people being there. But when they started coming, they came by school bus loads. They came by jalopies. Some of them had to be pushed off after it was over with. They came by Cadillacs. There were some county school superintendents and some county judges who drove Cadillacs. Over about 350 people turned out on a snowy night in the mountains of East Tennessee because they were interested in this program and their hopes have been aroused. Well, you speak of hopes aroused and rising expectations. To what extent are the rising expectations being met? Very limited. Uh, very limited in our area. Uh, What's happening? What do you see? What do you mean, what do I see? Why, what do you see in the way of improvement? What projects are going on? Projects we are operating now is a work program under the Nelson Amendment. Uh, and this is, we've had a very singular success with this in our area. Head Start uh, programs, both summer and four-year Head Start. We've got a lot of low-income parents involved in the Head Start program. Uh, they're very much interested in their children. They want their children to have a better chance, you see. We're operating in the Neighborhood Youth Corps. Uh, very extensively, extensively through our area. We, we have a program known as Operation Pebble. This was designed uh, to, to do something for our school dropouts. Our kids begin to drop out about the seventh, eighth, and ninth grades, you see. Uh, this is where they, they leave the smaller school and go to the junior high or high school. So we designed a program at Tennessee Tech uh, to, to make them find out that learning could be fun and that somebody really cared about them, was interested in them and, and keeping them in school. We put 800 children in the last two summers through this. We take them on the campus, we, we treat them as college students for three weeks. They're clothed, they're housed, they're fed. The best instructors we can find are put there. And uh, in, the in, in many fields, we try to help them see that learning can be fun and that they are important in our eyes. Well, then what is not being done that should be done? What's lacking? What's missing? Money. Uh, we s the nation has about 2,500 rural counties. There are 3,100 counties in the nation. About 2,500 are classified as rural by OEO. Only three-fifths of them, only 1,500, are, are now involved in a war on poverty program, in the war on poverty program. In other words, uh, 1,000, the residents of 1,000 of the nation's uh, counties, rural counties, do not enjoy any benefits or any participation in the poverty program. Even uh, in those 1,500, uh, uh, the funding levels are just not adequate to carry on uh, a broad-based uh, program such as uh, Cliff is uh, talking about. How much money do you get and how much do you need? <laughs> I can tell you about how much we get, sir, but how much we need, I don't know. <laughs> uh, our, our, at the current time, our budget is something over two million dollars. It's about two million one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to operate all the programs we're operating. But to illustrate the fact that we are not reaching out as much as we should, in our four-year head start we only have three hundred children involved, you see. And uh, we need really to put in the four-year head start 
about 15, 12 to 1,500 children. And, and is then, money the answer? Dan, this is only one, uh, five counties uh, out of the nation's 2,500 rural. And actually, uh, this, uh, this Cliff Ingram here uh, is a professional. And as you recall, he, t he dates his history and his program to August 64, which is the same time Mr. Shriver was. I'm not a professional. Uh, question that. Oh, uh, was, uh, oh, he's too uh, mm -hmm. modest. Uh, was starting the program off, and the president was signing the bill. And $2 million in five counties is way beyond. Uh, uh, if, I, if you were to ask me, I would say that the average five-county rural uh, community action program in this nation is, is lucky to have 500,000, uh, uh, let alone 2 million. But is money the only answer? I mean, in rural areas, do you have enough trained professional people to carry out the programs? If you had the money, if the money were pumped in, could it be used properly today? It could be used uh, uh, properly, uh, uh, yes. We don't have the leadership resources no, in rural areas, mm -hmm. either in terms of, uh, of citizen leadership or in terms of professional staffers. Uh, you're right. But this is no excuse for the nation or uh, to stop or hold back on a rural war on poverty. If, uh, if the nation is committed to this cause, and uh, we've seen uh, in both the State of the Union message and in the uh, uh, President's budget message and acknowledgement that more attention must be spent on the, uh, the war on poverty in rural areas, then the nation has to find ways of developing uh, rural leadership and, and developing uh, professional expertise. That, it's been a real drainage of leadership out of our areas, simply because there are no opportunities for a boy or a girl unless dad happens to open or you own something. And, and it's difficult. I've had, I have some staff positions that have been open for six months, simply because I cannot find the people to fill these staff positions, you see. And another unfortunate aspect is that OEO held the salary level down so low in comparison with salaries there that I can't pull back from a metropolitan area, you see, some person because of the low salary. Do you feel that the uh, rural areas are being shortchanged? Yes, sir. They have been. Yes, sir. They one, certainly. Uh, excuse me, uh, Cliff. One of indication of this is that, as you said, 43% of the nation's poor live in rural areas, and in the, the two primary categories of community action program grants, Section 204 and Section 205 of the the Economic Opportunity Act, OEO this last fiscal year only spent 15.5% and compared with 43% uh, of the problem. This is a third of uh, what's necessary. The first year, what did they spend? <coughs> eight, eight or 10% in rural areas out, out of the total allocation. But with all the best will and all the money in the world, and perhaps we don't have enough of either, I have to ask you this question. If you go into a, a, an urban area, you can get something organized, that people live closely together. Uh, you usually find fairly intelligent people who can take over these programs. You describe yourself, Mr. Ingram, the loneliness, people who don't see others for long stretches of time. How do you get community action organized? How do you get people who live in isolation to come together and get something done? I guess the same way you do in the city, sir, you go from door to door, and you sit down and talk to them, or you go to the, the little grocery store where there's a couple of kegs and people come in there and you sit there and talk with them or, or you go to their church or you go to the post office you say where they migrate to and you sit and talk with them. Now it takes longer in rural areas uh, really 
We've been in operation now for nearly two and a half years, and we're getting the organization we need, the involvement that we need now. But it's taken two and a half years to get this done, you see. Dan, uh, rural communities are communities, too. Uh, don't uh, don't uh, try to overemphasize that the only communities in the nation are, are neighborhoods and cities or ghettos or areas of cities. Uh, a crossroads is a, is a community in a rural area. The country store is a community. The church on the hill is a community. Uh, the one-room schoolhouse is a community. We have a, a community affinity in, in rural areas. Uh, uh, we may have to bum transportation with our neighbors and uh, other things like this, but community action, Dan, is really, in some respects, more indispensable to rural America than it is to urban America because of this very problem of leadership, as we were discussing, and other uh, structures to improve our communities. The big city mayor is a very much of a realist. He wants programs to benefit his people, and he gets them here in this city and from his state legislature. But uh, we don't have this type of enlightened self-government uh, in rural communities. Our counties are not dynamic governments. These little village governments are not dynamic governments. So the community action concept is, is a, a great new resource in rural America. For the first time, as one man said in my organization, those who don't have have an opportunity to be involved in making policy and decisions, you say. Well, let me ask both of you gentlemen this. When uh, the urban slums are not taken care of, you get demonstrations. You rarely hear of demonstrations in rural areas. But I think why we are, that? if this thing's cut off. Why, why is that? Why is it that the rural poor seem to be so much more quiescent in comparison with the urban poor? Well, one reason is, of course, we're talking the civil rights movement has entered into the, the race situation, and you haven't had the civil rights movement involved in, in the mountain sections. And there's a sort of fierce independence about some mountain folk. Uh, they really, they, they, don't, they don't really like to get together, work together. They, they want to be independent. They want to be self-sufficient. They, they frown on welfare. This, this is a stigma, and it's a last resort in many areas. They just don't like to, and so they're quieter. They, they don't know how to get together. They don't know how to get together and organize and put pressure on people. This is not one of their skills, and, and no one really has made, take, taken the trouble to help them get this done. Do you think perhaps a, a few demonstrations in Appalachia might be a healthy thing from the point of view of calling attention to the rural problem? As Cliff said, we may have them. I believe there's this much fer fermentation going on now, sir. What are the signs of it? Okay, what I was talking about was the last meeting that we called. Uh, I was amazed at the people who turned out. Half these people were dressed in the overalls or working clothes. The other half were middle-class Americans with suits on. And, and these people came because they were interested, they saw hope, they felt that if they got involved, something would be done for their area and they'd have a chance to improve themselves. Okay, you cut this off. And when mountaineers get aroused, they don't mind getting their shooting arms out. Well, this is not the point at which I want to leave this exciting story, but it's all the time we have, and thank you, gentlemen, for appearing on Capital Cloakroom. You have been listening to the 944th meeting in Capital Cloakroom. 
This week's guests were Mr. D. Richard Winner, Executive Director of the National Association for Community Development, and Mr. Clifford Ingram, Executive Director of the LBJ and C Development Corporation of Monterey, Tennessee. CBS News correspondent Daniel Shore was the moderator.